Thank you for joining Associated Luxury Hotels International for this episode of Beyond the Meeting Room. Beyond the Meeting Room is hosted by Alhai's president and CEO, Michael Dominguez. Each episode, Alhai shares candid conversations on a variety of topics to enhance your personal and professional life. We are joined by Dr. Michael Sorrell, the longest-serving president of Paul Quinn College in Dallas, Texas. Dr. Sorrell tells his story of transforming the college from a failing institution into one of the most successful black colleges in the country by leading with love. Listen in to hear Mike and Dr. Sorrell discuss their admiration of their mother's influence on their childhood and how parenting has played a role in how they lead their teams. They conclude with a truly inspiring story of how Dr. Sorrell decided to take a risk by replacing the football field at the school with a farm to help food scarcity in the area. All right. Dr. Sorrell, thank you for being with us um, on our Beyond the Meeting Room podcast. And uh, we were just talking that I am so excited to have you on, on this program because we we had the pleasure of being able to hear you, meet you for the first time uh, when we were over at our Omni Frisco property here at PGA. And uh, literally your connection with our audience, with your story and what you have been able to do mission focused more than anything, was not only inspiring, but quite impressive. And I'm excited that our audience is going to be able to hear a little bit more about that. So welcome to the show, sir. Well, thank you. And I am thrilled to be here. I enjoyed my time with you all out in Frisco, and I'm excited about being here with you today. Awesome. Thank you. Well, well, let's start for the audience that didn't get the pleasure to hear uh, about everything you're doing. Uh, Please talk about the college and and where you are currently and um, you know, we were joking that you're you're flying the colors because you've you've got I, I love the way you said it, homecoming creep uh, that has come into play. But I love that you're flying the colors, sir. Well, thank you. We um, for those of you in the audience who want to know what we're talking about, mm-hmm. I am uh, out of dress code for the podcast. <laughs> I am wearing one of our Paul Quinn College um, throwback baseball jerseys and I'm wearing it. Uh, because even though homecoming officially starts Sunday, um, homecoming has become this this enormous activity all across the country at colleges and universities. Our alums love it. They come back. They're thrilled. They're engaged. And what sometimes can be lost is that it's really just a multi-day party that the same (laughs) people are throwing. It's like an endless loop. And you're looking for different themes. And so what used to just be a weekend was then a week. And then it turned into almost two weeks. So now we've got a two weekend party. And (laughs) I had to be dressed today for part of the kickoff parties. And I just wasn't organized to wear the (laughs) homecoming gear and my podcast gear, and I just, I just made an executive decision to uh, go homecoming gear the whole day. So, <laughs> um, but Paul Quinn College is a really, really unique place in the American landscape. We are one of the 103 historically black colleges. Um, and historically black colleges were founded um, coming out of slavery uh, because you had four million uh, Americans who needed to be welcomed and educated into American citizenry. And there was no way to do that without providing for an educational bridge. 
and the historically black colleges were founded to be those historical bridges. And for us, we are now in our third location. We were founded in Austin, Texas. Then after five years, we moved to Waco. And we were in Waco for roughly 120 or so years. And Waco was, we built the black middle class in Waco, Texas. Um, but Waco's a smaller community. You've got right. Baylor there. And it was just a tough place to sort of really grow the way the school had ambitions of growing. And so in 1990, it moved to Dallas, Texas and purchased the campus of Old Bishop College, which was another historically black college, which had its own interesting history. It was moved, it was recruited to move from Marshall, Texas to Dallas in the early 1960s in an effort to keep SMU from having to admit black students. And the logic oh, wow. was that if black students had their own college, they wouldn't want to come to SMU. And, you know, this is an interesting Southern story, but ultimately what really ended um, <laughs> single race schools in the South uh, wasn't Brown versus Board of Education per se, as it was USC beating Bear Bryant's Alabama team and using black athletes. And Bear Bryant looked around and said, you know, <laughs> maybe we're looking at this the wrong way. Right. <laughs> um, and so despite SMU, the community's attempt to keep SMU all white, uh, the tides of football changed and the institution became more welcoming and Bishop College, you know, was a wonderful part of the Dallas community until it closed. Paul Quinn came in two or three years after it closed, acquired the property, relocated from Waco, and has been here ever since 1990. And it, it struggled for a good chunk of its history. And by 2006, the school had gotten to the place where it was going to close. Right. Um, and Boston Consulting Group came in, did a, an evaluation of the institution and said, if radical change isn't made within 18 to 24 months, Paul Quinn is going to close. And the president at that time literally packed up in the middle of the night and left. And the school was struggling to find a leader. And I was on the board at the time. And I was part of a group. Well, I, I was I was a board member that was actually getting ready to resign from the board because I was part of a group that was negotiating to purchase the Memphis Grizzlies. Right. And I was going to get to be the president of the franchise and a small, small minority owner. And uh, I get a call one day from the new chair of the board who says, hey, how would you like to be president? And I tell him, I was like, listen, I'm incredibly touched, but we're buying a basketball team. I'm going to get to be president of the franchise. I have no idea how much you're going to pay me, <laughs> but I know they're going to pay me more. <laughs> in that moment, you know, I had already moved on to sort of the Range Rover phase of my life. Right? <laughs> and the new chair of the board said, well, I'd like for you to think about it. And I thought about it and something spoke to me. And what I've now come to understand that it was the Lord pointing me in the direction of my calling. And 
So for the past 16 and a half years, a job that I had fully intended to take for 90 days has turned into my life's work. And mm-hmm. we uh, we have rebuilt the institution by challenging higher education to be more inclusive and responsive to the people who need it the most. And those are people coming out of under-resourced communities um, and first-generation homes. Right. We built our own model of higher education. We are the first urban work college in the history of higher ed. Uh, If you come to Paul Quinn, you get a job. Everyone gets an internship. And that has um, that has made an enormous difference in the lives of our students. We've improved graduation rates by over 30 percent. We've reduced student loan debt by thirty thousand dollars, looking like we're going to improve it even more than that. Uh, at graduation, roughly 70% of our students have jobs at graduation, not six months after. Literally, while they're sitting there, they know where they're going on Monday. Right. And that's sort of our thing. You know, parents didn't send their kids to us to tell them they'll be fine in six months after graduation. No, 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 no. They <laughs> want to know what they're doing the Monday after graduation. <laughs> and I know this because I have lots of parents come up to me at commencement and say, what are they supposed to be doing the Monday after graduation? <laughs> um, so we have um, we have really earned a place in the American higher education discussion by just re- being unapologetic about being advocates for the under-resourced and the marginalized. And, and that it, is the quickest way I know how to tell the story. No, my, Michael, I, I it, it is such, I, it's so funny because I think you, tell the story at times. And the second time I've heard the story of how it came to be. And you almost seem like, well, it, it's just matter of fact, it, it, it's impressive the work that went in and you you went into a lot of deep conversation around the work that went around it. But I, I love that you're mission driven, mission focused. Um, I think we need more of that, but I, I, I really love more than anything that you talked about leading with love. And if there's anything I think we need more of, more of in the world is exactly that. And all you have to do is look around us and you feel it and see it. Um, but if we could, if we could look at the world as everybody being our brothers and sisters, the, the world would be so much better off personally. And I, I just wanted you to talk to that because you have such a passion, but if you could start, because I already have the benefit of this, but if you could start on how you learned that you needed to lead with love. I thought that was really a fascinating story. I I learned to lead with love because I was being terrible at my job, right? (laughs) (laughs) If we are just going to boil it down to an honest point. Uh, So what what happened was that um, I, I took this job and we had maybe 30 days of cash on hand. And we had um, 15 abandoned buildings. We had, uh, we were a month and a half from commencement and we had five people qualified to graduate. Right. It was just a mess. And every day I would go home and I was working 17 hour days. Just, it was extraordinarily difficult and stressful. And every day I would walk out the door and I'd walk past 
the and I'm the 34th president, I think, at Paul Quinn. And I'd walk past the pictures of the other 33 presidents that were hanging on the wall. And, you know, look, these were black and white photos. I mean, people looked miserable and unhappy. Right? Like it was, and it was as if I was walking by murderer's row every day going home, looking at me like, you suck at your job, right? Like just, and I would go home every day. I'd sit on my couch and I would eat chocolate chip cookies and just try and figure out how this was going to work and being very cognizant of the fact that if I failed, this was going to be a very public failing. Right. And that was scary, right? Because I was in my mid thirties. Um, I, I left a career where I was being very successful uh, people had every expectation I would wind up in this very high profile career in politics. And I had taken a job that could very easily have gone so badly that all of that would be compromised. And so I'm stressed. And one day I'm on the campus and I get into an argument with one of our male students. And it was bad. I, I was engaging in what we could generously say was not especially presidential behavior. I understand. And um, the young man and I are yelling at each other and we're cursing at each other. Again, I want to be clear. I don't recommend this for right. behavior of a college president. It was not my proudest moment, but I also believe in always telling the truth, right? So this is the most authentic um, story that I, part of the story that I can give you. And, he and I are yelling and screaming at each other. We're marching up to my office upstairs. We're still cursing at each other and yelling. And we get in my office at my desk. He sits down and he breaks down into tears. Now, I grew up south side of Chicago. Uh, I grew up in a affluent home. But when you grow up in a big city like Chicago, no matter where you are, you're three blocks from things not being terribly pleasant. Right. And so there's a toughness to me. Right. And there's a toughness to anyone from Chicago. And I'm looking at this guy and I was like, how the hell are you going to be yelling and cursing at me two minutes ago? You get here when no one's around and you break down in tears. You are fake tough. Right. Like I'm not like uh, like I can't console him because I'm still too emotionally engaged. Right. But I'm in the office with one of my staff members, um, Miss Dickerson, who is just one of the most wonderful people ever. She's a quintessential Southern mother. She comforts the young man, you know, makes sure he feels loved and heard and seen. She walks him out of my office. She comes back. She sits down and she is disgusted with me. Right. Like, absolutely <laughs> disgusted with me and she sits there she rocks back and forth in her chair a little bit and she says baby I met your mother and she had met my mother because I knew her before I became president Paul Quinn and I used to do this annual fundraiser for um this school in South Dallas and she came to volunteer for my fundraiser and she said, your mother loved you, but she was tough on you. 
She said, but it was clear you were the apple of your mother's eye. And hmm. she said, honestly, you, you carry all the characteristics of someone who was overloved. And I'm sort of like, overloved? <laughs> Are you dissing me, right? I'm like, did you just get a little elbow in there and call me spoiled? And she said, so you grew up in a home where your mother and father were tough on you, but they loved you. So you grew up around tough love. She said, you've probably never known a moment in your life where you've questioned whether or not you were loved. She said, but let me ask you something. If you hadn't been surrounded by love, would you have ever heard anything other than tough? She said, you know, our students come from tough, tough places where they haven't had the benefit of being around love the way that you have. She says, so if you don't know love, would you ever hear anything other than tough? Right. She said, now, I know you love us. And I know you love this college. She said, but you are hard on us. You are tough on us. She said, and if you want us to trust you, if you want us to follow you, you're going to have to learn how to lead with love. Hmm. It was the single best leadership advice I have ever received in my life. One can make the case it was the single best advice. Right. It probably runs a close second to the person who told me I should marry my wife, right? <laughs> but um, it was... It was extraordinary advice. And honestly, it transformed me as a leader. It transformed me as a person. Right. It saved my presidency. Um, and, and frankly, it just, it made me a better man. Um, and it's made me the husband and father that I can be today. Because what it taught me was the power of authentic compassion gentleness and love and not being afraid to lead with love so if you come to our campus now it's nothing for you to hear me say to people i love you to right. see my students say we love you prez or me to say i love you to them to tell my staff that and, and let me be clear because i know that we live in an era where some people would be weirded out about having their boss say, I love you, right? I'm not talking about, I love you in the creepy sense, right? right. Like, <laughs> hey, I love you. I want to go on a date with you. No, I'm talking about the agape version of love, like that right. authentic selfless love. Um, the one which allows you to connect with people mm -hmm. and, and to be an advocate for them. Um, and, and we do, to your point, we do need more of that, right? It, it's a shame we live in a world where people define themselves through the lens of scarcity, because the reason people are angry, the reason that people are selfish is because they don't think they have enough, right? Because they've seen themselves, they've been made to believe that if they don't hoard what they have, that they will be worse off. And the reality of it is you won't, <laughs> you won't. There's enough here for all of yeah. us. 
And if you invested in leading with love, there'd be even more. Yeah. You know, Denzel always had this great quote. He always said, I've never seen a hearse. Uh, I've never seen a U-Haul behind a hearse. And it, it's this thing that he said, I was taught of, it's not what I have, it's what I do with it yeah. and how I help others. And it's that same message. And I always think about that uh, because all of this is, you know, I always say the rest of this is just noise. Um, we're, we're, we're here to lift each other up and we're here to, you know, and I guess the reason you resonated with me so much is I'm, I'm very much to the definition of a servient leader. I, I I'm here to serve. I'm here to serve the people. And, and when people are like, oh, you're in charge, I go, no, it just means I have an incredible amount of responsibility to make sure I take care of the people in my care. Yeah, that, that's, that that's what it's supposed to be. Uh, but you said something, you know, and it's funny, I, I was just in Vegas at one of our largest industry shows. And there's a few of few of uh, people that I've worked with in the past that I know well, and they're very much friends and brothers and sisters of mine. And it's interesting, because, you know, one of them, I'm seeing one morning, and he's coming by one of our events, and we're saying hello. And when we're saying goodbye, it's not even a second thought when we're hugging each other. It's like, love you, brother. And, and it's, it's real it's natural and no, it's not odd, but you're right. We live in a society that's harder to, you know, to be able to do that. And, you know, I, we have some dear friends that both the husband and the wife are my brothers and sister. And we openly say, I love you to each other without it feeling at all odd. But I also grew up, Michael, I, I think you kind of described my household. I, I, I had a tough Hispanic mother that I grew up with, but I never once questioned I was loved. Oh. And not not all. And to this day, it, it was interesting because, you know, when friends had can't come over and they always see us around our family, you know, my mom and dad and we hug and, and we hug when we see each other. We hug when we leave. We say, I love you. And and I get the little I love you, mijo, which is, you know, just fills up your heart because, you know, that's just such affection coming at you. Yeah, um, let me tell you, when I hear people say mijo. It fills my heart with warmth, right? Like, I mean, you know, like, like it's just, there's some words, there's some customs in other cultures uh, where you hear it and you're kind of like, you know, I would totally steal that, right? Like, I mean, it's just, it won't mean the same coming from, you know, like my black household, right? But like, it is, it's just like, it's like when I hear women say chica, right? Yeah. That's pretty cool, right? You know, I think that's cool. I'm like, you know, so I just in my mind, whenever I hear it, I'm like, I'm going to be a too, right? Like, I, mean, I, I explain that to people. Yeah, I go, you do not know how much love that word means. And and to hear my tough Hispanic father call me mijo, and and I know that is his way of telling me how much he loves me, you know, and and that that just that is stuck with me, and I do know I'm blessed, not spoiled, but I'm blessed. Really? But I take that as a responsibility of how do I make make that same impression on others, and how do you share that with the world? Because I know that's a gift, and and I, I I'm never ashamed to tell people, look, everything I am, I owe to my mother. And, and then they always ask me, is your father still around? I go, yeah, yeah, but he's right there. It's mom. It's all about mom. And, and the reason I, I do recognize that, Michael, my, my dad worked for the National Security Agency. He worked for Air Force Intelligence. He traveled all the time. It's my mother who raised us. It is my mother who was there every day. It was my mother who was there disciplining us. And we, yes, we needed it. 
Um, so I do say that I owe everything to my mother. Um, I owe having a great life environment to my father, but the raising was my mom and, and especially the most impressionable years. It was my mother. Yeah, no, listen, those, those mothers, I mean, my dad, we owned a restaurant he was always at work. Like I, the restaurant was closed on Mondays and Tuesdays. So that's when mostly we saw him. And, um, but I, like my mother, my mother was the person who taught me to throw a baseball, who played catch with me, who, you know, taught me, came out back and shot baskets with me and who, you know, when people didn't think I'd be able to run, she did the physical therapy with me when um, she got up every morning. I, I grew up in Chicago and I went to the best high school in the city, but it was 35 plus miles from my home. And I had to get up at 530 every morning to catch a train into the city. And my mother got up every morning, at 530 with me made me breakfast, went over my atrocious Latin homework with me. Um, I played three years of varsity basketball, which meant um, we couldn't get in the gym till 4.35 o'clock. Practice wasn't over till 7, 7.30. You know, several of those years, my mother sat in that car parking lot and drove me home so I didn't have to stand waiting for a train and get home at 10 o'clock at night. Yeah. I mean, just like that type of love and sacrifice. So she had a right to be hard on me because of the outsized investment that she was making. But God, I never questioned whether she loved me. And I never for a moment did not adore my mother. (laughs) It's funny you use those words. I use that words all all the time that I adore my mom. And and it's interesting what you just said. Very similar in that I worked part-time starting at 15 on the weekends in a restaurant with Hyatt Hotels. That's what kept me in the hotel business, literally, because by accident. But I would do this on the weekends. I'd have to be opening the restaurant by 6 a.m which means I'm up at five. Mom would be getting up with me. She'd make my breakfast tacos and the tacos are out the door as I'm going to work. And uh, before I could drive, she was taking me and dropping me off and bringing me back. But once I could drive, I still had my tacos and we were ready to go, you know, and that's, it's a different environment. It's a different environment. And it is just, you know, it's, it's a gift, you know, November 1st is the day of the dead. Right. And my daughter's school they gave her an assignment for it and they had to build their own um, shrine. And so my daughter comes home and she says, daddy, I want to do your mother for the day of the dead. And I'm sort of like, well, okay, well, why? And she says, well, you know, I know a lot about grandma, mom's mom, because she comes to visit all the time. She said, but I don't, I don't feel as if I know as much about your side of the family and I want to know more about them. So, you know, now I'm trying to fight back my tears, right? I'm like, <laughs> like, I love my little girl. <laughs> it's the most special thing. I, I know I'm being worked and I'm just going to buy whatever she wants for Christmas, right? And she, so she and I sit down 
and we build the shrine last night and you know we you know i order calla lilies because that was my mother's favorite flower mm. and you know i have given my kids penance college penance are on their walls right of schools that i'd like for them to attend and the schools where they have family members who've attended and so my mother went to dillard university in new orleans historically black college and so we take that pivot down and we use that for the shrine as well. And then we own a barbecue restaurant. So we find some barbecue sauce to make it as part of the shrine. And I, you know, I'm going back through my photo albums and telling her stories about my mother. And, you know, times like, you know, your grandmother was five foot eleven. And my daughter's like, what? She's like, that was huge. Like, what are you talking about? I was like, her favorite color was red. And you know, we're just going through all of these things. And I just, you know, I am who I am because this is who my mother built me to be. Right. And I just, I am forever grateful that I get to honor her sacrifices and her love in what I do every day now. And in, I mean, even the kind of father I am because right. on the deathbed, she she said to me, she's like, look, I got all the memories. I was at your basketball games. I was at your sister's recitals. I, she said, you know, your father didn't get any of that. He was always working and he gave us a great life. And, you know, he was a wonderful man. She said, but at the end of your life, the thing that makes you aware that your life had meaning is the time you spent with your family. And she said, if she had been Latino, she would have said, mijo. <laughs> mijo, you, you don't spend your life, don't spend your time making a life for your family that you miss the life of your family. Yeah. And I have tried to parent that way. I've tried to love my wife that way. Um, and I am just so extraordinarily grateful that I'm not grateful because I lost her because I would have give anything. Mm -hmm. I, I told my son this the a couple of weeks ago. I said I would give anything to hug my mother one more time, right? Um, and to have her see my family and just because she she missed all of that, right? Mm -hmm. um, it, it's funny I've told people, uh, Michael, that you know the hardest day of my life is going to be the day I lose my mother. Ooh. And and I've told my mother that and my mother shared with me, she said, as hard as that is, she goes, you never want to be a parent, you know, burying your kid. And she said, it's the circle of life. It's the way it's supposed to be. We never want to have to bury a child because she she told me that would break me to ever have to bury. And, and it was a great reminder. She goes, I know you're going to be sad. And I, I think there's one important lesson I've learned. And my mom and I have this, there is nothing left unsaid. Yeah. If my mom left tomorrow yeah. and I didn't get that chance to get to see her, I'd miss that final hug, yeah. but there's nothing left unsaid. She knows I adore her and I know how much she loves me. And I know that's unconditional both ways. And, I, I, and because of that, that's peace of mind. It's peace of mind and peace of soul, I, I like to say, in that no, regard. No, I, I love that. And I think that's right. And, you know, I, um, 
I try to do that every day with my family. Yeah. Like I, with my daughter, um, before she goes to bed at night and before she leaves in the morning, I always tell us that your father loves you. Your father adores you. I think you are beautiful. I think you are special. I said, I think you are super smart and really strong. And then, you know, it's like, where are you strong? And she says, I'm strong in my mind and I'm strong in my muscles. And, <laughs> and I said, what does it mean to be strong in your mind? She says, um, she says, uh, it means that you won't let people do, you won't let others convince you to do what you know isn't right. And I was oh, like, right. And she says, what your parents tell you to do. I was like, it's what your dad tells you to do. <laughs> <laughs> and she just laughs. She's like, I don't think mommy would like that very much. Like, tell her to get her own sayings. <laughs> I love that. Even competitive with the saying. I love it. <laughs> but to your point, it is it is leave nothing unsaid. Yeah. Let me ask you, you just said something, and I know in my own personal life, I've experienced this. How much have you learned about leading a team from your raising kids? As I tell people, that has been a tremendous educator for me yeah. uh, to understand. And, and like, I had a bunch of girls in my household. Um, you know, people are, they're always impressed. But when I, I look at diversity, Michael, the way I think you're supposed to in a business, somebody pointed out to me, I have an all-female team. And, and my executive team. And if you look at our executive team, it looks like a, an international coalition. And guess what? I wasn't trying to do that. I looked at talent. I looked at people. I always say diversity of thought is what I'm looking for. And I can't get diversity of thought without diverse backgrounds and experiences. Yeah. And that's what I was bringing in. But having an all-female team, I said, I've had a lot of practice because I had pretty much an all-female household. And you do learn. And, and seriously, one of the simplest things I've learned is, you know, men traditionally want to fix everything. I've learned sometimes, and you'll hear me say this often, do you need to talk or do you need time? Yeah. Do you need some space or do you need to talk? Uh, because sometimes people just want to, and then when they're talking, it's like, do you need me to fix it or you just need me to listen? <laughs> because those are two different categories on how I'm approaching the conversation. Those type of things were great lessons for me that I think have made me a better manager. I know it's made me a better father, but I also think it's made me a better manager and a better leader in my business as well. Do you have any of those takeaways and vice versa, maybe? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, everyone says that I'm far more gentle since I've had my daughter. Yeah. Far more sensitive. Um, I... I don't know how parenting wouldn't make you a better leader. Right. I, and it's interesting. I pride myself on being a person that cultivates female talent yeah. uh, because all the garbage gets removed. You don't have to worry about being hit on. You don't have to worry about being discriminated against. You don't have to worry about anything other than doing your job with your whole self. Right. Uh, if you need to go home early and take care of your kids, you better go. 
right? Um, you want to bring them to work? Great. I love bringing my kids to the office, right? Because yeah. I think we're better having the young ones around us. And I think we should all, I, I love the fact that people here, our children are growing up together on the campus because you know when we started most of us were young and didn't have kids or i wasn't even married at the time so right. my kids have been my wife you know kids everyone's been come along since i've been here so no i i think it's true and i think to the extent that you know we are charged with loving wonderful women and raising daughters it makes us better advocates for the needs of women and uh, you know look my life gets profoundly better whenever i'm in the company of wonderful women yeah so I yeah. yeah well and i think that's coming from uh two men that we just said were raised by strong mothers that we adore um i i think that really does come full circle because i i, I said i'm really in touch with my feminine side and I owe that to my wife and my daughters and my mother. And, yeah. and I know that um, I, I'm well balanced in that regard. And it's, it's interesting that I know that gives me an advantage and it helped me move much faster in my life without a lot of complication because I was in tune to that, to yeah. your point. And I do see it as a responsibility. I, I'm, I'm recently, uh, it's really co cool. They call uh they call them allies and there's a women's women in travel um, group here. And I'm one of 18 male allies uh, to this group. And I've now been assigned a mentee and it's really cool the way they put it together. Cause we have a conversation to see if, am I going to be the one that can help you? And what does that look like and feel like? And it's just so rewarding to say, Hey, if I can help, I'm willing to help. And just my advice and my own two cents, but you know, it, it kind of moves the needle for me. So it makes me feel good. That's great. Yeah. yeah. Let, let, let me, um, I, I got to share something because man, we, we start talking about our mothers and we go for two hours, you know, seriously, it's like, okay, I, I'm going to, I'm going to circle back to something. I, I think one of the biggest things, and you said this, you had a college that was failing and you, you, you need, and you heard, you said it earlier, like, got to do some things differently. We're going to have to break the model. Please tell the story because you did something that is literally sacrilegious in the state of Texas, um, and getting rid of your football field, but the story on the why and what came out of it, I think is to me, I took away, you know, seriously, that it was such a good lesson on taking risks. And what that could look like and looking at something in such a unique perspective. But can you talk a little bit to that? Because yeah. when, when you said you shut down a football field in the state of Texas, I was like, I'm surprised you're still here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. It was uh <laughs> no. the the reality of it is for us was that we couldn't afford football. Um, and we weren't yeah. very good at it. Yeah. Uh, it was costing us a lot of money to be to struggle. And why would you do that? Um, people tend to think of sports as the way out of poverty for black and brown bodies. Right. And the reality of it is it's, it's not the way to sustain pulling yourself out of poverty is how you cultivate your mind. And we were in a food desert. So we're in a food desert, the school, the community surrounding the school is closer to a garbage dump 
than a grocery store. Right. That's not right. And here we are playing bad football that people come see maybe six times a year. Right. No. So we terminated the football program and wound up turning the football field into a farm. <laughs> and and who ended up being one of your biggest buyers of, of yeah. product for your farm? So so the funny part about it is <laughs> our number one client happens to be the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> you know, the, there's the irony here, double irony, is that we have sent more kale to the NFL than we've ever sent football players. <laughs> <laughs> somewhere somewhere when that's your reality that lets you know you have no business playing football <laughs> i i love that story but it, it is i do mean it it is i know to you it's so logical but that is just so out of the box and thinking about i've got this great piece of real estate <laughs> that i can do something with and and we know it has uh, good roots because I can grow grass on it. <laughs> so I should be able to grow on <laughs> right. things. Right. Well, you know, a lot of my friends have teased me because they've said, hmm, we noticed you didn't terminate the foot, the basketball program. <laughs> 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 and, I, and I laugh about that. I was like, fair point. Fair point. Well, well, did you tell your friends that you can't grow crops in the gym? That's exactly, that's exactly right. It's like it, it wouldn't have worked as well, guys. <laughs> that's not how this would have worked. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah, you know, you, you talked about people having jobs coming out of out of uh, your college and and lined up. And uh, again, I just think that's not only unique; it's impressive. And you, you have these alliances that have connected. And I say that because for the audience, for anybody in a in a vertical and an opportunity that are looking for a great pipeline of talent. You know, those are, those are the opportunities where they should be connecting with colleges like yours to say, we have this. And, you know, all, all joking aside, cause I made a little joke on stage when we were together in Frisco that I'm like, you know, and, and I was calling out the, our friends at Omni. And I said, I, I think I see an Omni connection coming here. And, and I know, I know there, the, the conversation at least started and, it, it, I knew at that moment when I said it, I said it semi-jokingly, but the light bulb went off yeah. to say, hey, our industry specifically is always looking for good talent. Uh, we know we have a talent shortage overall. So why wouldn't I be setting up these kind of programs? I, I just think it's it, it's one, uh, something we should applaud on your behalf, but also an opportunity that I don't think we connect the dots enough as yeah. businesses and academia and how we kind of pull those two together. Right. I think that's right. I think, um, you know, a lot of times we just, we miss how much better both sides of the equation would be if people just worked together. Yeah. Can, can we get you to Washington and get that political career started once again? Because we, we could use some adults there, you know? Listen, that, <laughs> that, that thing has spiraled so far out of control. Um, I just... We do need people who will talk comments. I'll tell you what, I'll think about it if you think about it. <laughs> I, I've always joked about it. I said, I can't do it. I got too much baggage. You know, I really do. <laughs> well, nowadays, baggage is no longer a disqualifier. All right? I promise you, you don't have anywhere near the baggage. <laughs> 
Oh my God. It it is. I, I know we're joking about it, but it's also really sad because we got a lot of serious things we need to fix. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I wish we could attack it a, as adults and, and it starts with conversation. Uh, but I also think it starts with being able to understand we're, we're supposed to love each other yeah. going back to the common theme. And, and I do mean that it's like, how do we make others better? And, yeah. you know, you'll, you'll, you'll see behind me, I'm a diehard San Antonio Spurs fan and got my Spurs Spurs gear there, but it's their culture. I, I, I don't care about the team. It's the culture of an organization that has been consistently winning. They've missed the playoffs eight times in 50 years. Well, the, the other thing about the Spurs is when you look at how many other organizations have hired their people. Yes. Yes. Right. It's all through the their NBA. Footprint, their footprint yeah. is extraordinary. Yeah. You know, I, I, and I love when we're talking about making people better. The reason I brought it up or it, it's clicked with me is when they drafted Wimby and they're about to get started here, they asked Popovich in a press conference. They go, so what do you think about this young player? And he said, if he doesn't make others around him better his ass will be riding the bench like anybody else and and he's not just saying that he means it yeah that your job as a spur is to but there's there's one one piece of that story michael that i don't know if everybody's heard but you know i've read and seen everything on the spurs and their culture just the organization but they said you know when you, you, you i remember you telling the story that you're going out to scout talent well, when they go out and scout talent, they said, of course, we have our little card and, you know, we get to write down how how well do they run, how well, how high do they jump and, you know, what's their shooting percentage. And they said on a Spurs card, there's a there's one question above it. It says spur, not a spur. Yeah, because their point is none of this matters. Anything right. below that question, none of it matters if you don't fit our culture. Because you're going to be asked things to do that you normally wouldn't do. And yeah. that might be coming off the bench like Ginobili for 16 years because it made the Spurs better. And that's their organization. And I, I just don't think as organizations, we do that enough. Do they fit us or don't they? Because it doesn't matter how talented that's, they are. That's so important. I mean, look, culture, Trump strategy every day of the week, twice on Sunday. <laughs> just it's not even close. Yeah. And, and I think as leaders, we don't spend enough time there. And you said something earlier, and I know you talked about it more with us, that trust that was needed for people to know they love you takes intentional time and commitment. And I know you shared about how much time you spend with people yeah. and getting to really know them. And I think that's something most leaders miss. Yeah. No, let the church say amen. <laughs> Michael, thank you for the time. I mean, we could keep going. I, I so enjoy talking to you. This is my second time and it just feels so natural. Like we've known each other a lifetime. So thank you for that. That's a gift for me. And I tell people I love doing this podcast because I'm always better for it. And more than anything, I always leave with my cup full. So thank you. Thank you for filling it today, sir. Thank you for the opportunity. And it is truly just a joy to get to know you. Awesome. We'll see you soon. Let us know how we can help. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Meeting Room, presented by Associated Luxury Hotels International. 
Alhai is a global sales and marketing organization representing the finest luxury hotels, cruise lines, and a destination management company. For the latest industry news and to see Alhai's robust portfolio, follow us on LinkedIn and check out our website at alhi.com. To learn more about Dr. Michael Sorrell, please visit the Paul Quinn College website at www.paulquinn.edu. That's www.paulquinn.edu.